Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll get going. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. We, we kind of got a little bit off track. We were talking about the, in that class two, the spirit and the flesh, the second half of it. However, for the sake of a couple of folks that haven't actually been live yet in the class, um, a, a little bit about our, our itinerary here. Um, I give you the weeks. The dates next to the weeks are actually for the Wednesday. They were set when we were going to do this on Wednesday. I forgot to change them. Um, to Thursday. Uh, so that's the intended plan. We're probably not going to get to at least that last week, that last topic, just because we're, we're behind by about a week right now. My contact information is normal. Um, I hope you've been getting the links to the podcast um, as well as to the um, YouTube videos, which are on private links. Um, a thing that I, I have been mentioning is as far as the, the audio links, I've been sending you the link to the direct link to the audio. However, I have set up an iTunes podcast for the class. So if you want to just subscribe to the podcast itself, it's on iTunes as Legacy MMD Bible Classes. And um, you can do that, or of course, you can put the XML uh, into a podcast application, the XML address there. And you can just subscribe to it, and then as, as subscribe to it, they'll auto-update and all of those great things that podcasts do. Um, so that is... Um, so I'll just add to it, I watched one of the YouTube video parts that was really, worked really good. Excellent. And I've been trying to bump up the audio. I think uh, Mark was saying that the audio in the conversations has picked up pretty well. Yeah. Also, I, I, I post-process and bump up the audio on the, on the questions to try and keep those engaged. Um, but it is, a, it is a little bit lower than, than of course, my audio um, with me talking, but it seems to be working pretty well. So if you have any um, constructive criticism or anything like that, by all means, do, do let me know. Um, so last week we were talking about the, spirit, the flesh and the spirit, and we um, got to talking about several things. We actually got a little bit off even on some of the Christian and material possession stuff, which would be class four. I've got the printouts for those if we um, happen to get there. Uh, we talked about the marks of the flesh and the marks of the spirit and how when it comes down to it, the, the difference between the spiritual man and the carnal man or the fleshly man or the, the man who's driven by his sin is not so much a difference of what's happening on the outside because you can have a moralizing man who, uh, who has no faith in Christ, no, no necessarily a, a desire to please Christ or to follow Christ, but he is um, doing moral things for the sake of trying to earn his way into favor with God or trying to look good uh, in the eyes of others or whatever the case may be. Um, and we, we talked about that. We talked about the marks of the flesh that are given in Galatians 5 a little bit. Um, as he says them here in Galatians 5.19, this is on page 10 of class 2. Uh, Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. And then he says there, and such like. And there are several other lists given in the scriptures. We mentioned the list in Romans 1. We've read through that list. And in that list in Romans 1, uh, you see some other unique things. One of them, uh, as far as the, the marks of a, of a defiant age, is even, even disobedient to parents is on that list. Uh, and that, simply that idea of rebellion and a heart of rebellion. And as we consider these things, the focus the, that we dug down to is the question becomes, why are you doing what you're doing? 
And are we attempting to change ourselves from the outside in, or is there an inward compulsion in our hearts that is calling us to actions to, with a desire to please the Lord, with a desire to do what, what He says? Um, and that, that difference is, is essential, and it's something that I can't tell you uh, explicitly. I can't look at you and say, hey, what you're doing, you're doing for self-righteous reasons rather than God-glorifying reasons. You know that. God knows that. Um, and then there can be marks of that. Uh, but uh, a lot of this is, is about the heart. It's about what's going on inside of you. What are your motivations? Where does your desire actually rest? Uh, then we talked about the marks of the Spirit. And I, I, I'm... Uh, as, as we talk about the marks of the Spirit, we mentioned that the fruit of the Spirit is not something that um, we have to conjure up in ourselves. The fruit of the Spirit is something that, that comes out of us as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God. So we submit ourselves to, to Scripture. We submit ourselves to, to God's will. We, we place ourselves on God's side. And then as we do so, these are the things that naturally come out of us. Um, I think it was Darren right at the end last week mentioned, kind of he boiled it down to this idea that it's really an idea that what we want to be doing is, is taking God's word and, and seeing that if we do it God's way, there's blessing. And if we don't do it God's way, there's not. And even if what we see or what we feel seems to be telling us that we should do it one way, if that's contradictory to what God is actually saying we ought to do, well, the essence of faith is I trust what God says above even what I'm perceiving with my senses. Uh, where there's a, a contradiction between, say, what my senses might be telling me and what God's word might be telling me. And, and, and this is the essence of what the Bible calls the spiritual man. So we, we said right at the end there, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, that God is who he says he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That if I do right, and we use several examples, right, that I can, uh, and, and in the Christian businessman sense, right, I can use unethical business practices to get myself ahead, but I can trust that if I actually yield that opportunity that's unethical, and submit myself to the word of God and to God's way, that it will be better for me. Maybe not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean God is going to pour a bunch of money uh, into my path, but that there will be a spiritual blessing, and quite possibly as well, a, a physical blessing on the other end of that, as I submit myself to the way in which God would have it, us to, to do things. Um, the... The essence of this then, and, and I told you last week that we were going to jump back in, in the context a little bit. I gave you uh, Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21, then verses 22 through 24. In verses 13 through 18, uh, under the title there, The Necessity of Abiding, um, it says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. So the idea here, as we talked about in Romans 7, 
that there's a conflict in the heart of the believing man. Remember, we have that lamp analogy and the two outlets. And, and if you are a believer, then you have two outlets. You have the flesh and the spirit. And you're being empowered by one of them. But that doesn't mean the conflict is not, is not raging, that there's, there's the flesh in you, the sin nature, and there's, and there's the spirit in you. And a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned how the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you do not have to sin. You can be free from sin. But as this conflict plays out in you, how, does this, how is this conflict won? If I don't have to sin, how don't I sin? And uh, many Christians get frustrated because their method of not sinning is, I'm just simply going to discipline myself enough, or I'm just going to take away all the stuff of life because those are the things that that could cause me to fall. And we'll talk when we get to the Christian and material possessions. Any virtue can be a vice out of balance. Uh, the, the, the idea that all things are lawful, in other words, that, that there are not, in, in the Christian religion, um, in, in, in the, the essence of following Christ, is n- we're not actually a rule-based system. Christianity is not a rule-based system. Paul says here, you have been called unto liberty. The idea, uh, similar to what we might think of in the Garden of Eden, is God saying, you may have every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat, right? So there are things that God says don't go there, but in doing so, he's, he's provided for us countless other things that are significantly better for us anyway. We trust that if God says don't go there, it's because that's not what is best for us. It will not be what, whatever that sin claims to, to offer you. It, it will not give you everything that it claims. Um, and uh, on top of that, as, uh, as Christians, saved by grace through faith, our salvation is, does not hinge upon what we do or don't do. It hinges upon what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And to that extent, we recognize liberty. In other words, uh, God is not going to stand over you with a lightning bolt, right? And when you, when, when you step off the path, he strikes you down. I believe it was Chuck that said a, a week or two ago, he's not standing there with a gun, to, uh, 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 compelling us to do things, right? Uh, we are compelled to do things because we love him. We, we don't feel that, that God is standing behind me with a gun ready to strike me down if I don't do something or if I do do something. We've been called unto liberty. But, Paul says, don't allow your liberty in Christ because you're saved by grace and not by works because you don't have to go down a checklist every day and say, okay, if I don't do this and this and this and this and this, then God, I'll fall out of favor with God and God will, will, will cast me out. Just because that is not our relationship with God does not mean we should allow that liberty to cause us to Pursue sin. And this is the same thing that we considered in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And we talked about why that is. Because if, if we have died with Christ and risen with him again, then God forbid that we should effectively spit in his face by saying, you saved me, and now that you saved me, instead of using that as a means by which to serve you, I'm going to use it as a means by which to spite you. I'm going to use it as a means by which to reject everything that you taught, and uh, that is, is simply wrong. So then we come back to this idea. Why? How do we do this? How do we do right? Does it just mean that I have to 
discipline myself and, and, and cut off everything in life. And, and I, don't, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to where this is their perception of, of Christianity, of religion, and religion in general actually is this way, but, but because religions tend to be an out, outside-in type idea, whereas we would say that we, we are, we, you might be more or less religious, but what you have is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then religion is the framework or the outworking of that relationship. To whatever degree you read the Bible, go to church, or, um, uh, pray, those sorts of things, it is a, a, a framework that you've put in place in order to maintain a relationship with God. Whereas in the rest of the religions in the world, the religion itself is what it, I mean, that, that is your relationship with God, right? What you do is, in essence, your interaction with God entirely. And so if, if we are not this sort of religion where I have to give up everything that I like in life and everything that's good in life in order to please this God, then how do I both live life and maintain a purity of perspective? And, and, and this is what walking in, the flesh, uh, walking in the Spirit means. Walking in the Spirit is I'm submitting myself to the will of the Father. I'm aligning myself with God to where I actually begin to want what He wants. Trust Him enough to say, if God does not want that of me, then I don't want that of myself. And so I begin to align myself with God, and it is not a, and we talked about this in assurance, it is not a, a trial. It might be initially, but as you grow and as you trust, it becomes not a trial to do what's right because you know by experience that by doing what God asks you to do, it's worth it. There's blessing, there's protection, there's favor. There are these things. And uh, I think Greg mentioned this, I don't know if it was week one, um, it must have been, because uh, <laughs> that's the only week you were here, um, that he, he said it used to be that, in his experience, that uh, his relationship with God was things and trial and, and, and such, and then as he grew, he learned to trust and know and, and understand God better, and then it became something he wanted to do, not something he had to do. And, and this is really the essence of what it means to walk in the, in the Spirit, is to submit ourselves to the Spirit of God. So Jesus talked about this with his disciples in John 15. And at the top of page 11, I give you John 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So he, he likens it to the idea of, uh, in this case, it would be a, um, a vineyard, right? Uh, we don't have a whole lot of... Um, uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience with vineyards, at least in my life. Um, but we could also kind of picture it as a tree with its branches, right? And what Jesus says is he's the vine or the trunk. And uh, the father is the husbandman, the maintainer. And then we, his followers, are the branches of that trunk or of that vine. And he says that if a, a, if a particular branch does not bear fruit, then it is useless as a part of the vine or as a part of the tree. Now, when he says he takes it away, this does not mean that he takes away salvation from someone who has it. The idea of taking it away is he is removing the blessings that come from being attached to the vine. And we'll talk about what those are in just a moment. 
he says, and every branch that does bear fruit, the husbandman purges it. He prunes it. That, that was one of the hardest things uh, as, a, as a homeowner. One of the hardest things of, of working in the yard is when you see a healthy bush and you cut it back and you have to get over that psychological idea of I'm cutting off good stuff here, but I'm cutting it off because it grows more full, it's, it can be healthier, all of those things. And that's the same idea here. The Bible says that when we are doing what we are doing, we should expect there to be a purging process. In other words, God is going to bring into your life testing to try you, to try your faith, to, to allow you to grow greater on the latter end of that. And this is a part of, of a regular, healthy Christian life, is that as we are submitting ourselves to God, we are reaping the natural blessings of that submission, but then when that we, we should not expect that that, does, that that means trials will not come. That does not mean that there won't be trials to our faith and, and um, trials to our, our resolve and determination because it's those very trials, it's the pruning process that causes us to grow more on the latter end. So he says, now ye are clean, talking to his disciples through the word which I have spoken unto you. He says, you are believers. You are, you, you are, you are branches, if you will. And then he says, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. A branch cannot bear fruit if it's not connected to the tree. If a branch falls off the tree, it cannot anymore, it can't live. And it can't live because it received its nutrients from the tree. Jesus says, as a believer, you cannot function properly unless you are properly attached, abiding in, or walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ. And that concept is having a right relationship with God through uh, um, what, what we'd call a short sin account, the idea being that when I offend God, we talked about fellowship, right? And the idea of, of fellowship, and I, I use the hand analogy with my wife, that when my wife and I are married, and when we said, I do, that doesn't mean life is perfect, but when there are problems in our, our marriage, if I offend my wife or my wife offends me, there might be a, a distance put between us, an emotional distance, and that emotional distance is the natural, the natural outworking of the, the simple reality that there's something between us. We didn't become unmarried, we just, there's some distance, and then when I get right, or when I ask my wife for forgiveness, or she asks me for forgiveness, then there's a, a natural coming together, we don't have to get remarried, but there's no longer something between us. Well, the Bible says that when we sin as believers, now as an unbeliever, there's, there's not even a marriage, right? The, the, the relationship has not been initiated. But as believers, when we sin, there is a, the, we, we are effectively detaching ourselves from the vine. We are losing out on that, that the, the life that is in Christ and so the flesh now has the ability to work in our lives. Our sin nature has the ability to, com to deceive us and to compel us. And, and you'll feel powerless against the flesh. And that powerlessness comes as a result of you being detached from the vine, whether that's through um, a, a rejection of something that the Word of God says or whether that's through a, a, a known unconfessed sin in your life. So 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea being that if we confess our sins to God, is what the Bible says, that God is faithful then 
to forgive us and to cleanse us from those sins, to bring us back into fellowship with him, and then we can be reattached to the, to the, to the trunk, and then the nutrients can begin to flow again. When the nutrients flow, then we can bear fruit. Charles. Question. So when you say, you know, God is our Father, he will chastise. Yes. You know, when you confess your sin and, you know, you're reattached, does that mean that, uh, you know, he, he, will, he will stop chastising or, or maybe what you thought maybe a, he, would, he would be punishing you soon or whatever? You know, oh, I haven't confessed his sin. It's common. Yeah. You know, I mean, how does that work? Or, or does he chastise in his own time? And um, so th there's, there actually is a distinction, and the Bible would make this distinction. We see a distinction in discipline between chastisement and punishment. Chastisement is the process of bringing a person to a point of repentance. So the point of chastening someone, like if, 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 if my children do something wrong, the point of chastening my child is to bring them to a point where they recognize they've done wrong and acknowledge that they've done wrong and seek to renew that. That might actually be different from the punishment. Now, my children might not... Might not so if a child does wrong and a child comes up and says, Daddy, um, I took a cookie and I shouldn't have. He just came to me and confessed that. He does not need to be chastised. He is repentant already. He knows he's done wrong and he has come to me for, for reconciliation. I don't need to chastise him. Does that mean there won't be punishment? No. Chastisement and punishment might actually be two different things. So the, cha the chastening hand of God is only in the believer in order to bring us to a place where we acknowledge that we have wronged him and, and we're, we're on the wrong side of him and we seek for that, for that reconciliation of relationship. Then there might actually be natural consequences or even divine consequences of that as well. And a lot of times, what people call God punishing is actually more or less just the natural consequences of their actions. Um, and, and yet, there can be divine consequences for certain actions in a punishment sense, in a you did this and now there must be a consequence. But, but it is different from the chastening hand of God. Whereas the chastening hand of God is, first, it, it's first, first thing is conviction. I do wrong, and the Holy Spirit says, you've done wrong. You're out of fellowship. Maybe, maybe you're sitting in church on a Sunday and there's conviction. Pastor's preaching something. It may not even be the thing he's preaching on, but you know. <laughs> it seems like he's speaking directly to you, if you've ever had that happen before. Um, and that idea is the Holy Spirit is in you saying, you need to get this right. You need to, you need to get right here. And this is the first step. The first step of chastening is actually that kind of that rebuke or, or what we call conviction. And then if you, if you ignore conviction, then God might up the ante in his chastening to get your attention and go out of his way to get your attention in some way to, to help you see. And, and, and the process of chastening is a, is a process of humbling you to get you to acknowledge that you're wrong, God's right, and to get on God's side, what we, what we call repentance, right? It's to bring you to repentance. Um, so the, the idea, as, as we, we, I guess, focus more in on your question, the idea of the chastening stopping when you get right, yes. Does that mean that the consequences stop when you get right? Not necessarily. Okay, so they're separate of each other. Right. And the consequences might be, and, and I've experienced times where, um, where I or someone else has done something wrong and you would expect, and this actually happens, I believe, somewhat regularly in the jail, 
where a person has, they're, they're in jail, and, and of course, as we talked about justice the other day, when they go to their court cases, things can be dramatically different, right? They may end up in prison, they may end up in jail, they may end up on probation. And I've seen many a case where, um, where it almost seemed a lock that they would get one, and as they've prayed and as they've humbled themselves, something better happens. They get probation instead of jail time. And can I explicitly attribute that to God? I guess you can say giving grace or mercy and reducing the actual physical consequences of, of their choice? I can't, I can't say that directly. But I would not be surprised, and I think that there's precedent to say that, that God does at times, um, he's willing and more than willing to, even on the consequences of our actions, whether natural or divine, show mercy to those who have truly humbled themselves and who have realigned themselves with God. But the chastening hand of God stops the moment that repentance takes place. And this is where in Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he's teaching about the Lord's Supper and he was telling the church that they were doing it wrongly. And the reason why they were doing it wrong is because uh, what they were doing is, is if, if you've experienced the Lord's Supper, you pass the elements, there's the, the bread and then there's the, the fruit of the vine, the wine, uh, the, the, the juice, depending on uh, where you go. And um, as, as those elements are passed, you partake in them in a reverent manner in, in the manner that's prescribed in Scripture. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, they were not doing that. They were actually having what, what amounts to a drunken feast and calling it the Lord's Supper. And if you didn't have enough money or, or the means by which to bring food, then you were excluded. Sorry, you can't partake in this unifying event because you don't have enough money. And they were excluding them and they were, they were, they were reveling and, and, and getting drunk and it was just, it was absolutely um, uh, irreverent. And so Paul writes to them to correct them and he says, for this reason, because of your irreverence in this respect, many are sick among you and some have even died. And so there was an attempt by God to chasten them for their wrong, and, and, and there was a physical chastening even, uh, beyond just the spiritual, there was a physical chastening in their lives because of their wrong. And then Paul says, after that, he says, so let a man examine himself and then partake. And he says, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If I, knowing I've done wrong, throw myself at the mercy of God and, and, and genuinely repent, God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin, and then I don't have to be chastened. Because I have aligned myself with God. I've realigned myself. Now, does that mean there won't be consequences? No. Does that mean there won't be, if we can call it, punishment? No. Whether natural or divine. Uh, however, there does not have to be chastening in my life if I realign myself with God's plan. And you say, okay, well then can we just cheat the system, right? Uh, and this is the idea of when Peter's talking to Jesus, and Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? till seven times, and seven is the number of perfection or completion. So the idea behind that is, should I always forgive my brother? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven times, which would be really emphasizing all the time, right? And, and he, he, Peter even emphasized in that forgiveness for the same offense. For the same offense, I should really ask, uh, I should forgive someone 490 times effectively in a day for the same offense? Well, yes. But that idea there is not he's coming up and giving you a token. Hey, I just want to say I'm sorry so that I can do this to you again. But an actual genuine, I'm sorry, I should not have done that. And even if he does it again. And, and the reason why Jesus taught this in this way is because, and I, I think that you've probably experienced this if, if you're 
if you've been a believer for any period of time, where you legitimately desire to not do something. It's truly in your heart not to do something, and yet three, four, five times in a day, you might do it. And you do it, and then you say, ah, oh, I did it again. Whether it was, you know, uh, maybe you're trying to work on, uh, work on um, Ephesians 4.29. Uh, let no corrupt communication proceed out of my mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. So you say, Lord, you want me to have my words always be edifying. So help me to be edifying. And then next thing you know, you're, you're, talking to, you're, you're gossiping about the person next to you or you're talking down about someone. And you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And it's genuine. And then 10 minutes later, you're doing it again. Oh, Lord, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And so the, the example there is that every time we do that, God is ready to forgive. And he is ready to restore. Now, that doesn't mean my actions won't have consequences, but I don't have to be chastened. If under conviction, I, I realize something is wrong, I, I, I seek to stop doing it, and when I do it, I repent. Uh, clarification or, or questions on that? So in this, uh, in this idea... Um, when you repent, there is a restoration of relationship between you and God. There is, and that restoration of relationship opens up, if we can call it this way, the power of God through Jesus Christ or the Spirit of God to begin to function in you once again. So when the Spirit of God is working in you, when, he, when you are walking in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, will naturally come out of you. These are the things that you will see in your life. You don't have to conjure them up. You might have to, to think about, you, might, you, you will, and, and you would expect yourself to have to intentionally do them. It's not like you're a robot now, and you're just going to be a, a robot angel. But you say, I want to do this, and then you have the power to do it. I don't want to do this thing that I know I shouldn't do. Where does the power come from not to do it? It's not, well... I, I want to stop te- uh, being unkind to people, so I'm just going to not talk. Or I'm just going to separate myself from everyone. Uh, those solutions would work, but in doing so, um, all I'm t- attempting to do is, is take myself out of the, the situation where I might be tempted to do wrong. And to live that way is to bind myself to something that is either unreasonable or uh, even if it is reasonable, all I'm doing is effectively conditioning my flesh. But if I'm walking in the Spirit, then in that moment of temptation, through the Spirit of God, I will have the power to overcome. To where every time that there's the opportunity to sin, if I'm walking in the Spirit, I do have the power to overcome. And if I, if I don't overcome that temptation, and if I do sin, it's because I yielded to the flesh. I did not yield to the Spirit because the Spirit, the power is there. If I walk in the Spirit. And the, the, the most important first step of that, of course, is being right with God so no unconfessed sin. And, and when I say no unconfessed sin, um, the question then comes up, well, what if I don't know about it? Right? So if I don't know about sin, then what do I do? And there are a couple of theories about this. Um, in Psalm 19, I believe it is. Let me, let me get there. Um, David writes, Who can understand his errors? 
Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. So based upon that verse in Psalm 19, it's Psalm 19, verse 12. Um, some people believe that um, you should, and, and it, it's, it's a good practice to, uh, at the end of the day, take a moral inventory of your day. Ask the Lord to show you if there was anything that might have offended him in the day. And if the Lord brings something to mind, to confess it. Lord, forgive me for that. And then also to say, and if there's something that I did, I did that I didn't know I did, a secret fault, cleanse my heart from that. Uh, there's also those that say, and, and, and I, I appreciate this perspective as well, that say, well, if the Holy Spirit's not convicting you, then don't worry about it. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, and, he's, and, and you don't have to walk around wondering what sins you might be committing that, that, that you don't know about because the Holy Spirit is either convicting you or it's not something that the Lord is working on you right now about and, and so you don't have to worry about it. So there's both those schools of thought. I don't, I don't necessarily... Uh, I can appreciate what Psalm 19 says. I can also appreciate the idea that, that if you're a believer, you're going to be convicted for the sins you commit. And if you're listening and, and, and you're, you're sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then if, if you're convicted, just get it right. Um, but I would say this. Don't, don't spend your time so worried about the things you don't know you did that you may have done that you get frozen into feeling as though you can't be used of God or walk with the Lord or these sorts of things because um, that's, not, that's not the nature of God. God is not a guy sitting up in heaven laughing at us as we're groping around in the darkness trying to figure out how to please him. And he's just like, oh, they, they missed it again. Oh, yeah, there they go again. Uh, they were really close that time, but uh, they, they just missed it. Now they're walking the wrong direction. God's not like that. He's not st standing up there laughing at us as we're doing it wrong. He's given us every opportunity to know him through his word, through his spirit, and he desires us to know him. He's reaching out to us. He, he, he wants a relationship with us. He's not playing games with us. Um, so this idea of, of being right with God, and as we're right with God, then the Spirit of God can flow through us. And then as we submit ourselves to the Spirit, determining in our hearts, I'm going to do what God asks, and this is why it's important to know the Word of God, you can overcome. So I believe it's 2 Corinthians 10 uh, says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a, mean, a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. God never gives so us something, whether uh, uh, allowing temptation unto sin, or a trial in our lives that he does not allow us to bear. All right, and then we'll talk, I think, finally, yep, finally there on the bottom of page 11 about the source of victory. Where is the source? So how is it that we maintain this connection? We've talked already about having uh, a short sin account with God, confessing our sin, making sure we're right with God on these accounts. The last bit here is what we call the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the Bible says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles of the devil, the temptations, literally the wiles there, meaning the attacks of the devil. 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The battlegrounds of this world are actually not fought on the physical plane. They're fought on a spiritual plane. There are demonic elements at work. There are, are demonic temptations at work. We'll talk more about that when we get to prayer. And that is uh, where our battlefield lies. So when, when a Christian, uh, if for, to whatever degree a Christian contends against unrighteousness in this world, as we've talked about various elements of, of the unrighteousness that is in this world, uh, what a Christian needs to try to do is maintain the perspective that the person on the other side of the argument is not the enemy. The enemy is not that organization or that person that's attempting to erode the foundations of society. The enemy is the, 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 the Satan and, his, and, and the demonic hosts that are compelling these evil ideologies and that are bringing these things about. And the most uh, effective way that we can combat them is on a spiritual plane. And that spiritual plane is given here. So he says, Wherefore, uh, verse 13, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. This is how you stand against temptation, whether flesh, in other words, temptation that derives simply from your own sin nature, or temptation that derives from Satan uh, through his, his tempting in our lives. And it says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. That would be effectively like a belt. Truth. Having a breastplate of righteousness... Feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts, that word is arrows, of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So, the idea is, the elements of victory in the Christian life are truth. We stand on truth. We, we love truth, that we identify truth, and that we maintain a loyalty to truth. We're not pragmatic. We're not ends justifies the means. We don't allow truth to fall underneath the weight of, uh, of personal experience or personal preference. We, we, we stand for truth. Righteousness. The things that God says are right, the things that God says are wrong, we love the right. We, we, we are loyal to the right. Righteousness is what I mean by the right there. We, we reject the wrong. We seek out for righteousness. Um, the idea of feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, there's two kind of ideas about that. One is that you're, you're, you're ready and willing to be an open testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel, the good news, um, that you are, you are not ashamed of the gospel, that you're willing to stand for it even when others are not. Um, the shield of faith. And this is the thing that actually quenches Satan's attacks. Is when there are when the world, the flesh, or the devil tells us this is what you want. And it's sin. And it's compromise. And it is only your faith that says, though I cannot see God, and though I what I see before me, everything in, my, in the world, the flesh, or the devil tells me this is what I want and this is what will be best for me. I believe what God has told me above what I see or what I feel or what I, what, what, I, what I am touching, it's more real to me than those things. And through faith, we overcome temptation. 
if you get to the point in your life where you say, there are things that I could do, but my relationship with God and the blessings of that relationship with God are actually more important to me than anything in this life, then no matter what this life has to offer you, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to lose the relationship that you have with God and, and, and the closeness that you have. And that's, the, that's where faith is intended to bring us, to that place where the things that God says are actually more real to us than even the things that we might see with our eyes or hear with our ears. And the helmet of salvation, that's being born again. Um, that is accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So uh, the, the Word of God is uh, an important part of our ability to stand in, in the day because our, the Word of God is what tells us what God wants and what God does not want. It, it defines for us what truth is. It defines for us what righteousness is. It defines for us what, what it is that we are to put our faith in. And so it's important to know the Word of God. And it's important to, to, to study the Word of God and it's important to be, be, be being taught the Word of God because that is how you know how to please God. And that is how you know what does not please God. And then the final bit there, praying always. All of this um, must be um, filled with prayer. And uh, the, the idea, as we see it here, is watching and praying. In other words, being alert, knowing that every day is a, day, is a spiritual battle, that, that every day is... There are choices that you can make to do right or to do wrong, and you are vigilant and ready to do what's right. You don't take a day off where you just assume that, well, today the enemy's not going to attack, and so you put down your walls and you, you lower your drawbridges, and, and then the enemy comes in on that day, right? You, you watch, you're watching, you're praying, you're asking God for his power, you're seeking uh, um, the, the, the power of the Spirit of God in your life, you're, you're, you are seeking to draw near unto God to maintain a close relationship with him and to keep him number one, to keep him at the top. And this is the source of victory. This is where victory over sin, over what we call the flesh and over the world, uh, and the world there not meaning the people in the world, but the, the darkness of this world, the false truth claims, the false philosophies, the false priorities of this world, and then certainly over the accusation and confusion of the devil and spiritual forces. It comes through prayer and all of these elements of the armor of God prayerfully being put on in our lives. Thoughts or questions on that? Okay. Um, the third class, which I believe I... Did I, did I give you all prayer last week? I, I may not have. I've got a pretty good stack here. Um, so let me just... Let's see. One, two... Uh, you know what? Just go ahead and pass the stack. Uh, and it'll make its way around. So um, the next topic, which is technically week three's topic, is prayer, Bible reading, and church. Um, I, I want to introduce you to these, as it were, um, to just give you a little bit of perspective. Prayer is going to be a bit more in-depth, and then uh, we'll, we're going to talk n not quite as in-depth about uh, church and Bible reading, but I want to introduce you to um, the, the philosophy behind why, why it is that church is actually an important thing, why it is that personal Bible reading is actually an important thing, 
um, because this is not, certainly this is not an, a, agreed upon uh, in Christian circles. And um, as, as I present this material, the, the intent is not to say that if you don't, that, that your relationship with God depends upon church, depends upon this, depends upon that, that if you don't do this or don't do that, you cannot be a good Christian. But what, what we'll see is that there are principles in the Word of God that have lent themselves to these truths, that church is an important thing, and it's something that God wants us to do, and it's something that is extremely beneficial to the believer. And Bible reading, regularly actually, you know, knowing your Bible, reading your Bible, um, um, these sorts of things are important as well. But we'll begin with prayer. So, um, in Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, we, we see a, an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And the Bible says, It came to pass that as he was praying, that would be Jesus, in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So uh, they ask him this specific request that, that, that Jesus would teach them to pray. And then he gives an answer. And we're going to walk through that answer somewhat slowly. How do you pray? What does it mean to pray? And that's what we're going to walk through. So verse 2, what to pray? And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. And um, this is what we call, uh, in our circles at least, in my circles, the model prayer. Jesus is not explicitly saying you have to pray this prayer. As a matter of fact, one of the warnings that we'll see is a warning against what's called vain repetition. And the idea of vain repetition is that I just repeat words over and over and over again, thinking that through repeating the words enough, God will hear me. Uh, that is something that Jesus explicitly warns against in the scriptures. But the idea of this is you're coming to him as your father, so you're recognizing the relationship with him, and that his name is to be hallowed. His name is to be reverenced. It is humility. It is to the father. So um, what we see from scripture is that we pray to the father through the son in the Spirit. And I give you the verses there. Jesus says, pray, in the, uh, pray this way, our Father which art in heaven. So we're praying to the Father. John 14, 14 says, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So the idea of asking in his name isn't necessarily just invoking his name. Although uh, Greg and I had a conversation about this a while back. There is precedent in history and in, in, in experience to see that invoking the name of Christ can have power in and of itself. But the idea of, if you shall ask anything in my name, is not, if you, you know, regularly hear people pray and they say at the end of their prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. The idea of saying in Jesus' name is not actually praying in Jesus' name. It is acknowledging that the whole prayer has been coming through the authority of Christ. Because Jesus said, uh, and in, in Hebrews chapter uh, um, 12, I think, uh, the Bible says that we come boldly to the throne of grace. I don't think it is 12. Uh, uh, but we come boldly to the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the presence of God himself rather than having to go through a high priest as they had to do in Israel. And so he says, Hebrews 4, thank you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. So enter boldly into the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we come in the name of Christ. In other words, uh, if you've, if you've uh, 
um, well, it's kind of the idea of, of validating parking or whatever it is. Uh, someone has given me the authority to not have to pay parking or someone has given me a, the authority to come before you. Uh, and if I invoke the authority of someone who has authority in order to get a privilege. We come to the Father and we come to the Father invoking the right to come directly to God through Jesus' authority. And it's Jesus' authority that gives us the right to pray directly to God and to not have to go through a high priest like they had to in the Old Testament. So we come through the Son and then we come in the Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit of God helps our infirmities for we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So even if you, 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 don't, you say, I don't pray because I don't know what to pray or I feel like I'm doing it wrong, you can't do it wrong. Uh, you can't do it wrong because the Spirit of God is interceding for you if you're a believer. You come and you, you pray to the Father. You pray in the name of the Son, through the authority of the Son. And then the Spirit of God intercedes for you. The Spirit of God stands between you and God. And um, actually, if we can say it this way, interprets your prayers for you. Um, question on that. Those, in, in, on that concept or those ideas. This comes up from time to time. There's a guy that comes to our Tuesday night service and he prays to Jesus. And actually, one of the young boys in my church came up one time and rebuked him and said, you should not you know, pray to Jesus. And, and because I've taught that you know, the model in scriptures, you pray to the Father, you pray through the Son, you pray uh, in the power of the Spirit. Uh, or, uh, and and um, if, if people pray to Jesus, um, I don't make a big fuss about it. Jesus is a part of the Trinity. He's God. That's fine. However, the model that we see in Scripture, and what you will find in Scripture is you will never find a prayer other than people actually crying out to Jesus while he's physically present. Lord, save me. Peter's sinking. Lord, save me. You know, when he walks on water and, and those sorts of things. You will never see an example of anybody actually lifting up a prayer to Jesus himself. Sir? I had a question. <clears throat> so I was raised Lutheran, mm -hmm. and so you, you memorize this prayer, right? Right. Uh, it's very similar to being Catholic. I, yep. mean, I go to these Catholic events, and they repeat these same things over and over again. If, if uh, in repeating the words, they don't really have any meaning because you're just repeating them to repeat them, and it's not you're doing that. You're not being deliberate about it. What I mean, what is the purpose of these religions like? Catholicism or even being Lutheran mm -hmm. to, 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 to repeat this drone mm -hmm. this droning like thing as a congregation um, it, they're, well the purpose as it has formed as it's come into the church <clears throat> is that it's not just droning right that this is something that Jesus said pray so we're obeying him but it's it it, it does not become that for many. For, for many, dead people droning on. and in many cases, that is what it has become. And now, not everywhere, not in every heart, right? But for many, that is exactly what it's become. And then it falls into exactly what Jesus warned against, which is vain repetition. For they think that through their much speaking, they are going to be heard of God. So would you say that like the Catholic Mass itself is vain repetition? Uh, well, especially when Catholic... Okay, so Catholicism had this thing for a long time where they did it in Latin, right? The Latin Mass. 
Um, nobody could understand it. But Latin is, the, the, is God's tongue because it's the tongue of Rome. It's the tongue of the Vatican. Therefore, it's, it's, it's God's language. It's the language that you do it all in. It'd be similar to, because the Bible was written originally in Greek, me actually invoking everything in Greek. And then they believe that there's a spiritual power simply in the actual language. ritual itself. And this is something where there's a huge... Uh, th this is one of the big disagreements between the litur what we call the liturgical denominations, which is uh, Catholicism, uh, um, Episcopalian, Anglican, and then Lutheran. Uh, Greek Orthodox to a lesser extent, but still very much. Um, and then Lutheranism is actually... So Lutheran, L even though Luther was kind of the big mover and shaker that changed everything as it, re as it related to the Catholic Church... Um, it, the, the Reformation is called the Reformation, right? Luther did not ever want to completely separate from the Catholic Church. He only wanted to reform it. And it was in desperate need of reform. And in many ways, there was a Reformation that took place in the Catholic Church because of Luther, even though the Lutherans never went back. But they maintained a lot of the ritual and a lot of the liturgy. And in the days of Luther, there was almost a renewal of the purpose. But then again, it's faded. And this is the danger of religion is that as it stands today with many of the the Catholics I've interacted with it is especially when you talk to young people who you know they 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 go to whether it's whether it's Catholic or Lutheran they they get infant baptized then they go through the confirmation for Lutherans and then after confirmation they're done I, I'm in I don't have to go back because I the, the the church has baptized me so I've gotten that, and then they've confirmed me, which means I'm a member, and that means, they effectively believe that that means they're going to heaven. And this is all, this is empty ritualism for those that are actually attempting to earn the favor of God by doing stuff, right? This is exactly what we've talked about. This is religion. Now, that doesn't mean every single person in their heart, whether Catholic or, or Lutheran, um, has, thinks that way. Uh, uh, but, there, the, the, the liturgical nature of the denomination as a whole or uh, and, um, whether you know, it be the Catholic Church or the various liturgical denominations outside the Catholic Church the, the nature of those the liturgies have basically boiled over a lot of times into vain repetition and just <coughs> ju just <coughs> ritual yes sir yes I know <laughs> but the repetition is the Bible is Repetition. Every time we go through it, it's repetition. Mm -hmm. You may get a different interpretation based on where you are at at the time. You don't need to go right. But yep. the Catholic Church really has its annual ritual that it goes through every year. We've got Easter and Christmas. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and, and I, I will say, I, I mean, doing a lot of work for the Catholic Church, I know the difference between people who truly have a faith. Right. And they're using the system to express the faith, right? Versus people who are just showing up to check the boxes. I get it. I'm just wondering, you know, where do you, where do you? I mean, is it is it really just come down to the individual and their heart and what they're meaning, or if it's just I'm checking boxes and that's really the key difference? Because I know plenty of people use the mass, which is obviously very repetitious, mm -hmm. re repetitive. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a real way to connect with God. And mm -hmm. they really do. Um, and then I see other people who just do it to kind of make sure that they... 
Well, right. I think a lot of the people who are checking the boxes are probably not there on Sunday. No, not regularly. You know, it's a lot of the Christmas Easter crowd. If they are there, they're probably just going to satisfy their family or their spouse or just right. be in there. But, but one of the things that, now as, uh, th there, there is a disagreement here. I, I, uh, well, th there, there is a disagreement between Catholics and Protestants on this. That's why there's Catholics and Protestants, right? And so to, to, to say that in, in a group of people who, who uh, have a, a mixture of that, that there's going to be, okay, I see it, everyone's going to see it the same way, is, is not realistic. Uh, however, I will say that I, do, I personally do believe, and this is why I'm not Catholic, right, that many of the things that have, are now at play, operating within not just the Catholic Church, but the liturgical denominations even of Lutheranism and such today, have become... Um, have conditioned the people to trust the liturgies themselves as a part of being right with God as opposed to trusting in the relationship. They, they, they see the relationship only through the lens of the things that they are doing. In and out, say this, repeat after me, stand, sit, as opposed to a actual relationship with God. And again, it does have to boil down to the individual level One because... Yes, sir. Things within Catholic churches, I believe and I obey. Uh -huh. So you believe the scriptures. Right. You accept those as being absolutely correct. Right? I mean, that's just part of it. And you help others. Like, that's another... You know, uh -huh. I was raised Catholic as well. That's no excuse. You help others, especially the poor, especially the right. poor. Right. Yeah. And you got right. the church does a really good job. You know, the Bible <clears throat> says this. We are telling you this. You will do this. Right. And the the again, where where there's a little bit of tension here is um, when you there's there's a significant number number more conversions or or. There's a significant num a higher number of people that come out of the Catholic Church into evangelicalism than come out of evangelicalism into the Catholic Church. And when you talk to people that have come out of the Catholic Church into Orthodox evangelicalism, um, the, the, w the reason why they have done so is because what they found in the Catholic Church was the empty ritual. That's what they perceived. That's what they understood. That's what they knew. Um, and they throughout all of the I believes and throughout all of the recitations and throughout all of all of those things, it never touched them. But they were able, because it's such a formal system, they were able to be good Catholics without any faith at all, in, the, in that sense. Because they were able to just, if, if they go to Mass, if they go to confession, if they do this, if they do that, if they do, then they're, then they're, they're, they're fine. And this is that difference that we've highlighted between Religion is a do thing, and Christianity, in its actual essence, is a it's already been done thing. Jesus has already done the work, and that's what I'm trusting in. And so anything that I do is on the basis of what has already been done. Whereas oftentimes the danger of liturgy and religion, and again, that doesn't mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater. I do disagree with a lot of what the Catholic Church in, has instituted, but I don't disagree with the idea that religion is important. Um, and James even says, 
pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. However, when religion becomes the ends of my relationship with God or attempted relationship with God rather than the means by which I, I maintain it, there's a, 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 an imbalance there. And throughout history, uh, the Catholic Church has had heavy ebbs and flows as to... And, and then particularly, depending on who the priest is and who the bishops are and whatnot in any particular area, the degree to which there is actually some sort of life of faith or whether it's just all ritualistic so overflow. you people are putting more faith in the system of faith rather than their relationship? Yes, yeah, so let, let's, let's take it back to what Jesus, the world Jesus came into. Jesus came into a world of people who were religious and moral, right? The Pharisees the Sadducees, the Jews. They were extremely religious. They were extremely moral. And Jesus, John looked at them and said, you are a generation of vipers. You're snakes. Jesus said, you are whited tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus said, you're like cups that are clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dirt. You're, you're a useless cup. And what Jesus was doing there is there was a group of people who had their rules they took the Bible. They took all the rules of the Bible and said, I believe every single one of them. By the Bible meaning the Old Testament. The Old Testament at that time, right? So they took all of, and, and they had uh, Judaism, what, I, I think it's 617 laws that they identify. And you have to keep those 617 laws as a part of your Judaistic, Orthodox Judaistic ritual. So you have these 617 laws that you have to maintain. And they identified all those laws. And the Pharisees were the pinnacle of Judaistic culture because they could go down that list. And physically speaking, outwardly speaking, every single one of those boxes was checked. But they were, what they had done is instead of worshiping the God who gave the law, they were worshiping the law itself. They had made the law their God. And unfortunately, one of the things that, that can happen in the Catholic Church is that they, and not just in the Catholic Church, please don't get me wrong, but they can, because the liturgy is set, because the, the, the um, expectations are set, because there is this heavy tradition and, 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 and all of these things, that can become the God. And so people can go through the motions, look great on the outside, they can be, the outside of the cup can be clean, look good, but then what they do is they are Christians on Sunday and they're devils Monday through Saturday. And then they say, it's okay though because I can just confess to the priest and then I'm, I'm good again and then I can just go back to doing what I do. That is hypocrisy. And that is exactly where, that, that's exactly what the Sadducees did, except, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. They said, I'm going to keep it all on the outside, I'm good. But on the inside, there's absolutely no desire, compulsion, to, to, to please or serve God, their desire and compulsion is please family, please church, earn favor with God, work my way to God. Just out of curiosity, do you feel like it, they, they did that to, to present themselves to their peers this way, or they really believed that presenting themselves this way to God was the right thing? Are we talking the Pharisees? Yeah. Um, they, they believed it, but that's because they didn't know God. The God, God was their law, so they thought they were pleasing God, but they had... So this is what humans do. Humans, if, if, um, if I don't like what God has to say, I, and, and, but I don't want to reject the idea of God, I change God to the kind of God that will not care about my faults and really care about the things I do well or that I can do well. 
So I, I make a, a, a God right. out of what I wish God was as opposed to what he is. Right. Sure. So I, I, can, I can do what I choose, still be my own king, still be in rebellion to the real God, but, but have a farce that satisfies me that I'm actually in harmony with God. You're exactly so you're saying, right. So you're projecting a, a, a false God. Yeah, right. Human nature has not changed. Right. No. I mean, no, no. it's exactly the same today. Mm-hmm. It's three totally yep. <coughs> So it's what we make of. Right. It, it is, absolutely. And... Um, a lot of people now. Now in the in the Catholic Church, we would we would say that the Church has become this. In the Evangelical Church, Jesus has become this. And what I mean by that is, I, I can't tell you how many people in mainstream evangelicalism have never heard of one message from their pastor from the Old Testament. Have never they, they they don't know what the Old Testament says. And a lot of these people will say, No, the Old Testament God was an angry God. I don't do the Old Testament God. I do Jesus. Jesus is the God I serve. The Old Testament God is an angry God, a homophobic God, a genocidal God, a patriarchal God, or whatever you want to call it, God. And they reject the reality that, that, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And they so over-intensify that Jesus' is forgiveness and love. Love and grace. But then what that extends into is that he's also accepting of... My and sin. And I'll list all the sinful behavior you choose to partake in. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right, and he's going to... Forgive me. Which kind of takes back to that verse of Romans, which is like you go on sin and you Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and my contention is if you understood who Jesus was, Old Testament to New Testament, some of us were fishing in Canada last year where we talked about this in depth, yep. but the same guy that, that, that through things were created, who strikes down Egyptian firstborn, who strikes down Midianites in the Old Testament, and will one day come again to rule his enemies with a rod of iron, is that same Jesus that came and died. So when you have that perspective, you, you can't say he's so loving he, he will forgive all sins and ignore sins. justice right. right, in favor of mercy because he clearly wasn't that from before and he's not that in the end. So how can you take the middle and then extrapolate that into the whole? So, so they have created a God in their own image called Jesus. The one that they wish, which is one that's... Which is the one that ignores holiness right. and righteousness and so, that they can, so that they can do their sins while simultaneously being right with God. It's like making, again, like making up your own God. Right. Yeah. And so it's not to say that the Catholics are the only one that, 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 that do this. It, it, uh, they, they tend to, their, their problem tends to be with the church and the religiosity and, and the liturgy. Same with conservative Christians. In my circles, I'm a very traditional conservative Christian. That is our temptation as well. Legalism, the idea that we're serving standards rather than serving God, that we're erecting kind of a God in our own image. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it's grace to the exclusion of obedience and holiness. That becomes the God. And you erect a false God um, that, that has those qualities that ignores your sin. A God that you could not imagine would, would uh, reject somebody because they don't believe in Jesus. A God that you could not imagine would, would actually put someone in hell even though they mean well, even though they try real hard, even though they fill in the blank, right? And, and that's just not what the Bible says. And so bringing this full circle, the reason that I've invited you guys to these kind of things is because what I said is what really matters is let's read the book and see what the book says. And then each of us coming from you know, very different backgrounds can conclude uh, is the place that we're worshiping or what we've been taught in congruence with what the book actually says. Because ultimately, where we can find common ground, most of us anyway, 
is that the book is true. And so we should learn what the book says and then follow what the book says and, and, and not potentially fall victim to what a group of people has erected as, as their version of God. Right. Let's go to the root document or the source document and read what the source says. But you are going to have different personalities with a large group of people. Yes. <clears throat> people will have a particular path that they will follow that walks with God. Okay? And mine's going to be different than somebody else's. Right. As long as, as long as the path is based or yeah. rooted in the yeah. book, exactly. I would never take issue with it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But um, the key is, is what's rooted in the book. And so when you talk about repetition, I think two things that you could take uh, to, to, to give you some concern about repetition, any form of repetition for its own sake. Jamin quoted a verse earlier, and then specifically about the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that this is how you should pray as opposed to repeat this process. So to me, when you read the context, he's saying this is an example of how to pray, not these are the magic words. Mm -hmm. but, so then, but then, so, so when you say that, you know, Jesus says this is how to pray, that could be interpreted as pray this. It could be. It not, could be. Because, because when I get in an argument with my business partner about why I can't take communion at his church, mm -hmm. it's because when they say, uh, Jesus said, this is my body, that being Catholic, you believe it actually through yes. transubstantiation becomes flesh right. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, I know he said that, but he's saying it metaphorically like, this is my body. And they're like, that's not what he said. He said, it is my body. So then I hear, well, Jesus says, pray like this. And I'm like, well, what angle are we taking? Because maybe we do just pray right. this. And, and so to me, that's where having a broader context right. of the teaching both in the specific passage and applying concepts throughout all of Scripture help give a, a, a more precise interpretation when you have something that could mean one thing or it could mean another. And, and, and likewise, it doesn't... If I were to start my day praying this very prayer every day, knowing what the prayer means, not trusting that invoking the words of the prayer are doing anything for me, but actually invoking the meaning of the prayer... That's what Jesus wants. Now, it, it, well, it is and, and meaning. So, so this is why I'm walking through it the way I am. So when I say, O Father, uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, I'm teaching you what that, what, the, what that means. That means we pray in humility, recognizing that his name is to be revered. It means that we're praying to him as our Father. It means that we acknowledge him to be in heaven and us not to be. In other words, the idea is you're up there, I'm down here, I need you. And whether you're invoking these exact words or you're saying, Lord, you're in charge and I'm not, the spirit is there and the meaning is what matters, the, the intent of the prayer. Yeah, but you talk about hypocrisy. <clears throat> Since the kingdom comes up, it should be done as in heaven, as on earth. I mean, you look at what's going on on earth today and there's no relationship to heaven at all. I mean, the crap that we've got to but that's, that's, but I mean, Abortion, I mean, you know, take abortion, the killing of fetuses and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's the intent of the prayer. Right. How the, can people get their arms around manipulating that to say it's okay? Well, right, and, but that's not what you're... You're not praying, Lord, um, I want... A, your will is being done. It's, Father, I am a lot... And, and the, the second half here, um, we are coming in agreement. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your kingdom is coming, and your will is going to be done, 
in, on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to happen. And today, I am aligning with the principles of your kingdom, with the principles of your will. My will, your will becomes my will. If you want it, that's what I'm going to do today. And my part of the world, my, my day, my intent, my desire is your desire. And that, that's going to be me. And, and that's what, what, what that means, right? I say this, I really have a hard time getting my arms around that particular sentence, right? Well, how could we ever so, so heard what's going on? Well, I think I, how I see it is, is it's, it's our desire that we have on earth how great heaven is. Yeah, explain to me, desire. thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Explain to me what as you interpret it, what that means to you. I think what I'm praying for is that, that heaven will be here, actually, potentially going on mm-hmm. as, as we're currently acting earthly things. And that, like I say, it's hypocrisy. It's no way with the direction of things going I, the way they are, then it you're right. We'll make it so, so I think, Chuck, your uh, feeling that there is a gross lack of, of sync between how God rules in heaven and what's happening on earth mm-hmm. is exactly the point of why you're praying right. that all the dysfunction on earth would cease and the perfect will of the Father that's enacted in heaven right now be enacted on earth. That's exactly what you're praying for. It's right. so screwed up here. Let's get rid of what's going on here. Why don't you come down here and rule like we will, like we know it will in the end so your perfect will will be done on earth like it is already being done in heaven. And that's why thy will be done is preceded by thy kingdom come because we, that's why we read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and you read the end and in the end Jesus comes, he abolishes sin, he abolishes unrighteousness, he judges unrighteousness and he creates heaven on earth. And so when I say thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the prayer is, Lord, I'm, I'm, and the Bible says there's a blessing to those who look for his kingdom, right? Who long for his return. And it's literally saying, I'm looking for your kingdom, I'm longing for your return. And if we're looking for his kingdom all throughout the, the, the gospels, what that means is, uh, Jesus says, my lamp is lit, my loins are girt, the, the, the master could come back at any time. Every day, every moment of every day, I am living my life as if, Today, God's going to come, and I get to answer for what I'm doing. And I'm going to, he's, he's going to come, and I'm going to lay my talents before him. And I'm going to say, this is, what I, this is how I've invested my life for you. You've given me these blessings, and I've invested those blessings for your kingdom. And if that could happen, to, if, if we knew, if you knew that God was coming three weeks from today, your priorities would change over the next three weeks. The money wouldn't matter. The, the businesses wouldn't matter. What would matter is, is my family right? Is my family ready? Am I ready? Um, have, I, have I invested? Because heavenly rewards are on the other side of his coming. So ha, do I have heavenly rewards? Am I re- have I been building up? Sure. What, what can I do for the next three weeks to build up heavenly rewards? Because that's all that matters now. And the idea is that every day, now we don't sell everything that we have and go sit up on a hill because we don't know when he's going to come. But every day is viewed through the lens of the Lord may come, and when he comes, I'm going to be ready, which means I'm going to to be working for him, serving him. I'm acknowledging through the prayer, your kingdom will come, and in that vein, your your will is going to be done, and my prayer is that it will happen. Uh, and, And 
in, in doing so, it's aligning my heart with God's heart. It's aligning my agreement with God's agreement that, that I'm going to live today and I'm asking you to help me live today in a manner that is befitting your kingdom and is, is ready for you. What else? Okay, next. I didn't mean to stir the pot. No, it's good. Uh, how are we doing on time? Yeah, this is, this is why we're here. Conversation makes this so much better um, than just me up here lecturing you. The big difference between the Catholic Church is we have a very uh, rigid ritual that we follow in Mass. Yes. And to go on with the public today, whatever, they've gotten into a evangelical church, which is far more entertaining, far yes. more acceptable to the children because it gives them something to watch, to listen to, the bouncing ball kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and all that. And the difference in people is, <clears throat> particularly you get into teenagers and say, this is boring, I want out of here, da da da. You know, to keep them closer to that, you've got this far more entertaining feel. But I, I challenge you all, the future of where our kids are with these devices, whatever, I mean, it's going to become really difficult to keep children on track. Oh, yeah. I, the, the, yep. the, I mean, the devil's in, mm-hmm. in so many ways. You're absolutely right, and we are going to come, and we talked about this, uh, I don't know, end of last week or the week before, that we are coming, we are going to have to come to a crisis point with technology, Um, and you're right, that there are, I would agree with you, in fact, that as far as the entertainment focus um, of the church, it it is, and and the problem with the entertainment focus of the church is the mindset of the entertainment focus of the church, it's not that entertainment is wrong. But the mindset is we are going to become like the world to win the world. And that's what has typically defined what, what has become mainstream evangelicalism today. As a matter of fact, uh, so my church is what we call a fundamental church. And uh, fundamental, the, a fundamentalist uh, doesn't, isn't a good thing anymore, right? Because that name is normally connected to Islam and normally connected to people that blow other people up. But um, the, the idea of a fundamentalist versus the evangelical world, and this debate actually took place in the early 1900s, was that the evangelical world said, we are going to go into the world and become like the world to win the world. And the fundamentalist said, no, we live distinct from the world, and then they see that distinction and want what we have. have right? And there's that, that difference. Yes, sir. When you say we want to become like the world, that could mean a lot of things, right? That could mean we embrace sin and the devil's world. We embrace, But it also could mean... For example, I go to a church and they just released an album full of great music, mm. really great music. Like you listen to this music and it's very current, but the message is beautiful. I mean, it's really great. Right. And and so when you say like the world, do you mean become stay relevant with culture to continually bring new in? In part. Because, in part. Because there's, I mean, there's a difference between staying relevant in culture and adopting the world's evil. Mm. That's different, right? Yes, but the lines get muddied, and this is this is one of the the you know as you would say the debate between the fundamentalist and evangelical world um, that the, those lines get muddied. The more you so the more you embrace the culture, the problem is is that for a time, of course, especially in the United States, culture was very receptive to Christianity, but that's not culture anymore. And if we continue to 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 embrace culture, what you are embracing is a evil 
and wicked culture. But I, but I would right? debate this. Like, if you go to the Catholic Mass and you listen to the music in the Mass, yes. the music is of a certain time period yes. that was decided upon. Okay? That's just a time period, no different than the time period today, mm-hmm. where new music is being made. Mm-hmm. And just because it has, you know, uh, a, a bass drop and it sounds yeah, awesome, a rock concert doesn't doesn't deal. make it evil because it's of a modern era sound. So 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 can I go? Ahead right, oh, you you can a little bit, and then I've got to I've got to pick up. But you go first. You go first. You know, we talked about the food now. It kind of looks same, but it doesn't have the same quality of food of yesteryear. Sure. Okay. There is there is absolutely no doubt in my mind when you look at the quality of what's actually taught in the music, it's alignment with, with scriptural principles, mm. that at best you're drinking skim milk that's been robbed of its nutrients. I can agree that that is true with a lot of things, but not everything. If you took if you took an old school hymnal and you stacked it up against the playlist of the modern blah blah blah, right, and you just weighed them out, yeah. you'd break the scale. So if you cherry pick the best one and the worst one, you might have a chance. But this is like college versus pro. Don't you think pro. that's like you no, like metal and I like jazz? No, no, because when I first went to James Church, I hated the music, and now I wouldn't trade it for anything. For all the reasons that you're thinking right it's now, not that I'm crazy. Taste. I don't think so. I think it's just that you realize the richness of what you could have had, but you and can't then you say that swap. is true for everything. Though. I mean, like I was saying, my church just came out with an album, and it is very rich. I will send it to you. You can listen. Well, but I'll tell you what. Sure. It's it's like, it's like, I'm not keep going. going. No, I'm not, I mean, I could just a win-win a debate. I mean, write it all out and compare. Sure, sure. But I don't. I would also say this: the thing that you have to be cautious of is we've agreed that the source document is the book. Yes. I don't see any evidence in the book that supports a theory of in order to save people, you should conform to their poor behavior. But but hang on, the music well, made is not poor behavior. Well, what I'm going to say is is that it's culturally that of the day, and the impetus behind changing is often to become more attractive. The book doesn't, there's, there's no marketing in the book, okay? The book doesn't advocate you should change the book in order to be more appealing. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It says don't ever change the book or you're hosed, yeah. right? And it says if you just say what the book says, okay, the spirit will convict the pagans, okay, that what the book says is true and the spirit will convert them. Your job is to preach the book. First learn the book if you don't know the book. And then once you know the book, then you're in a position to preach the book. Sure. That's the prescription. It's really straightforward and simple. And the impetus for gymnasiums and rock concerts and all kinds of stuff, yeah. to me, comes from those that in some way don't trust the fundamental principle that the book in and of itself is enough. Yeah. And, and there's, sev- there, there's several things that need to be said. The first thing, uh, r- right on that last bit, there is a difference between different, using different methods and then inviting distractions. So... Um, so it, it used to be that having a piano, now we use a piano in our church, it used to be that, that if you had a piano in church, you, you were of the devil. Because pianos were found in saloons. saloons. And so you were of the devil if you brought a piano into church. Now that's not debated. Uh, it used to be you know, the, the idea of, of bringing projectors into the church. That's something that various people have resisted. Now these are what we could call, um, th- these, are, these are methods. But the danger becomes 
there's a line between changing your method in order to better reach the world, things like maybe using digital, digital media and those sorts of things, YouTube using YouTube, these sorts of things. There's a difference between changing methods and actually changing priorities. So what happens is now, since the rock concert is what brings them in, and they are the, 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 the Twitter generation, we do an hour-long rock concert and we have a 10-minute little empty spiel, or maybe not empty, but really short because attention spans, right? And now what we've done is we have taken the most important part, which is getting the word of God out, and we have subjugated it to culture and to the fact that what the culture wants, what you're, what you're bringing people in is music. And for any of you that, you know, if it, for, in anything, whether it's, whether it's marriage and dating or whether it's, uh, whether it's marketing, how you win them is how you keep them, right? How you win them is how you keep them. If you win them through carnal things, so I'm appealing, and, and, and this is where we'll get into the music debate. Th music, regardless of the words, there is a, it's not just a marked difference between the richness of the words of old hymns, although there was a, there was a time where hymns were so much richer. And the idea is, and, and uh, when, when I went to China, went there for six weeks on a missions trip, and we ate all you know, natural foods and whatnot. They, didn't ha they don't have preservatives over there. Everything was steamed. I came back, and when I opened a jar of peanut butter, I could literally smell the preservatives in the jar when I opened it. You don't smell that normally, right? But you, because you had been distanced from it. Uh, people don't know what they're missing. They say, wow, this is so rich, because they've actually never tasted a full diet real of real eggs, right? Because all they've ever had is store eggs, and they've never had real eggs. So, so there is that, but I will contend, and, and, and Greg and I have not even gotten into this conversation, and I don't think we'd agree there. I would contend that there is actually a morality, not to just words, but to music itself. There is a, and music is mathematical. Music is extremely mathematical. Anyone that's into music, you know that music is math. Math is music. Music communicates through meters, through uh, through rhyme, through rhythm, through patterns. This is how music works. And when you get into things, the, 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 the bass drops and the, the syncopated rhythms and the riffs, it is actually communicating something to the person. There's, music communicates itself. And it, in marketing, you know this, right? You know music communicates. If you watch a scary movie on mute, you're not scared because it's the music that sets you up for, it, it sets the tension, right? Music communicates. And if you know music communicates, then you have to understand that music, even outside of words, has morality. It, it, letters don't have morality, right? A, B, C, D, they're just letters. But when I put those letters in a certain order, all of a the sudden they become words, therefore they have meaning, therefore they take on a moral thrust. If I say C, D, E, F, G on a piano, that means nothing. They're just notes. But when those notes are combined together, they take on a communication all their own. So I personally believe, and this is why it's, it's, it's not about how old the music is. It's not even just about the words. I do personally believe that, that our culture, that music reflects our culture, not just in interest, but in the fact that I believe that the, the sound of the music itself appeals to the flesh. You're not going to have somebody before a football game with their Beats headphones on listening to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven. That music does not get your heart pumping in the way that heavy you know, rap, hip-hop, whatever it was, would get your heart pumping. What's the difference? It's not the words. 
there is actually a physical, a physiological impact of that music on your body. Physiological impact that makes them ready for, and, and you can see this in the Old Testament. The drum beat for war, right? The drum beat for war. The dum, dum, dum. It was to work these guys up into a frenzy to give their lives in war. That is an appeal to the flesh. If the Spirit of God is peace and joy and harmony, and if this is the Spirit of God, if that's the Spirit of God, then if I am syncopated rhythms, disharmony, discord, the things that really play in today, the things that are actually composed in the music to create chaos in the body and the spirit, I believe it's a problem in and of itself. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have modern music. There's a lot of good modern music that conforms to the proper... And if you, if you, if you study music theory, there is a proper way to write music, and then when you... The modern music actually purposefully deviates from it because it appeals to, in my opinion, and I believe mathematics itself backs it up, it appeals to the flesh. It appeals to a part of you. When you hear uh, um, um, big band type um, music, what am I thinking of? Uh, like marching band tough stuff. It makes you want to march, right? Why was Elvis such a big problem? Elvis was a big problem because he sexualized music, right? And that sexualization was because the sound of the music actually has a different physiological response in a person than, say, classical music or marching band music. There is a desire to move in a seductive manner based upon the music. I can't, you know, the idea of moving seductively to Beethoven, um, it doesn't fit, right? The, the body feels uncomfortable it, seductively dancing to Beethoven. Maybe today... Well, how about back in Beethoven's day? There had to have been music. No, because era. because the, well, there, there was, was music of the. Plenty of women that danced to that back then. But not to Beethoven, right? Well, there was a place for that music, but the dominant music of the day was what it was because the dominant culture of the day was biblical. These people understood God, regarded God, and saw order. And because they saw order, they sought to even conform their music to the natural order of. I've got a great um, two-part series on this if, if, if anyone wants to listen to it on, on um, audio. But they were conforming their music to the mathematical principles that music actually is supposed to conform to. Modern music, a lot of times it doesn't have an ending, right? It just repeats until it fades to black. That's something that leaves you hanging and it's something that is actually uh, not good. It's not a good music writing technique from, from the standpoint of actually writing music. Why? Well, because it doesn't finalize. Finality is something that's important to music for humanity. It's something that, that resounds with us. There needs to be that finality. It's the same reason why when you, when you have a scary movie, they have dissident chords in order to build tension, and then you hold it and you don't resolve until after the tension point. And then there's resolution. I have a question. Yes, sir. The Bible is our book. Right. So where does it say something about the way music should be? Well, what we find is this. We find that when Saul had an evil spirit within him, what did David do? Played. He played. He played music. And the evil spirit left him. So whatever it was that David played on that musical instrument pacified the heart of Saul 
and caused the evil spirit to, to go from him. When um, Moses was on the, the, the Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, he and Joshua are coming down from Mount Sinai and Joshua says, there's a sound of battle in the camp. And Moses says, that's not battle, that's singing. The singing was so discordant and so convoluted and so chaotic. And what were they doing down there? They were having a, an orgy and worshiping false gods. And the music that accompanied the orgy and worshiping false gods was chaotic, so much so that Joshua actually thought it sounded like war. Um, have you ever seen a documentary? And, and, and the irony is that it's only Christians that, that tend to argue against the power of music. And I'm not saying that uh, as a whole, but they, they argue against the morality of music. But uh, you can listen to interviews from you know, the, the, the heavy rock bands where they're like, you know, they talk about how when they drop a certain beat, you can actually see the crowd change. Like there's a change that goes over the crowd. Uh, it was Plato that said, give me your musicians and your poets and I can change your culture in a generation. The idea, it's not an unheard of concept that music is powerful. It's just that we don't like the idea that maybe it is that this music that we're listening to in Christian culture, not even discounting the words, many modern good, you know, music, great words, uh, uh, not quite the level uh, of the, what we call the, the apex of Christian hymn writing, which was the, typically about the 1800s. But uh, still, there's plenty of good words out there. However, what you'll find is that the music itself tends to appeal to, and this is the other part of this, and, and many of the words, feelings and emotions versus truths. This is one of the other problems, is that um, modern church, whether you're talking about the messages that are taught and preached, or whether you're talking and particularly about the music, it is meant to only touch your feelings, give you an emotional high. The problem is that emotions fade. And if you want to keep yourself on emotional high, you have to keep giving yourself another shot. And what the music is doing today is it's, it's appealing to the emotions rather than appealing to the truths. It is even if the truths are there, the truths are subservient to the emotions, to the emotions of the message, to where we are, we are, are, are feeling-oriented in the church now rather than truth-oriented in the church now. And that is dangerous because that leaves people, they, they, they have to go from conference to conference to conference or from concert to concert to concert. And they go to the concert and they're all hyped up and then it's like, bam, they crash. And then they're living in, 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 in this discouragement and whatnot and then they get the next shot in the arm. Even to where, if you listen to, I don't know, is it KTIS? Is that the Christian station? Um, that w w what's their slogan? I, d I don't listen to it really, but it's like encouraging and uplifting or something, right? Uh, uplifting and encouraging? Yeah. Like sure you don't listen to it. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> no. Hey, I can vote for name the tune. The only ones he got were the old school hymns. I, I, okay, I so. tell you. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I know my old school hymns well. That's right. He dominated in those. But, um. But the idea is, what's their focus? Not, it, it's, it's uplifting and encouraging. Okay, well, that's great. We need to be uplifted and encouraged. But why art thou cast down on my soul? Why art thou disquieted? Hope thou in God. Uh, encouragement and uplifting is the natural state. Of, I, can, I can sing the song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, and be uplifted and encouraged. I can talk about me being a worm and a vile sinner and be encouraged, because I know that at the end of that verse comes, 
at the cross where I first saw the light. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day because the, 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 the reality of my sin gives way to the, the grace of God. These doctrinal messages are inherently encouraging or they're convicting to get right with God. But well, I'm just going to come to church and listen to your hymns. <laughs> if they're that good, Greg, I mean, you give, it three give, weeks. Me a, give me you'll, a you'll, CD. You'll, you'll change. And, and I, I, can, I can actually, um, I, we, our church has a, a huge stack of great music that if you want, and, and it's in our lending library, I can bring the whole, the whole stack, and if you all want to take one home and you listen to it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for, for the whole group. Um, I'm going to bring a CD too, though, so we're going to share. But, but the idea is this. It's not a problem to to change our methods. And one of the biggest problems in the church is that we are prone to, to not adapt. And then we can be left behind. But there's a difference between adapting and assuming elements of culture that can actually be dangerous or problematic. And it's just, it, there, is a, there is a legitimate debate in Christian circles that things such as highlighting um, uh, you know, youth, youth activities and all of these things to where it becomes about games, it becomes about music, and Christ is almost a sidelight, whereas in the liturgical churches, uh, in traditional churches, they're unapologetically, look, we are here to teach, to teach you about Christ. We're here to teach you about, about truth. And it's not always, it's not always entertaining in, this, in the sense of, I came and, and I was entertained in the same way of sitting and watching a movie. But if you are desiring to know Christ. Okay, so this, this hour, or these two hours that we do, I'm not entertaining you. I'm teaching you. But there's enough value in that to you that you'll take time out of your extremely busy schedules to come and sit here and listen to me teach you. There's something in this, even though it's not entertaining. We believe that that is what church is about. Content. And if you can have great music and it, it's in its proper place. And uh, again, in, in, in our philosophy, there is also a music element, a structurally music element that we desire to see, not just a words element. But uh, we, we conform ourselves to these things. Then that music can be impactful. And that music, that music in itself can convict and can change hearts. But it's all in alignment with, with Christ. And one last thing on the, on the music. You had asked about where, where in the Bible does it talk about this. So I gave a few examples of, of music and, and its impact. But one of the things that's interesting about um, all of the elements of the world is if you acknowledge God as creator, then you acknowledge design in everything. And if you acknowledge design, if I acknowledge design in the world around me, then, that, then I can ignore the... Design becomes the presupposition and I can just build great things. So in other words, uh, the early scientists were all God-fearing, right? Nowadays, scientists say, no God, we don't allow for God. But the early scientists, you, your, your guys like um, um, uh, Galileo and Newton, um, uh, Kepler, Kepler uh, Louis Pasteur, who, uh, all of these guys were deeply devoted to the reality that God created. And because of that, I mean, how many billions of dollars are spent trying to disprove God in science today? How many billions of dollars are spent on things that we have talked about in our last class? The, you know, the eco-movement. 
Yes, we're supposed to be good stewards of the earth. But God said, as long as the earth exists, there will be springtime, there will be harvest, there will be winter, there will be summer. And how many billions of dollars that could actually be going into like real research are going into averting a crisis that God says simply will not happen? If we took a presupposition of God's design into science again, then we could start actually progressing at a much faster rate. The same thing with music. These men, Beethoven, Bach, Rachmaninoff, all of these men, they had a presupposition of design in music, that, that music has a design to it, and they said, we're not going to try to buck that system, we're going, to, uh, we're going to acknowledge that design and we're going to operate within that design, and then they were able to just use that design to make beautiful music. Nowadays, what we have is we have people that are actually, they're, they're changing the design, they are, they are um, rebelling against the design itself and attempting not just to build good music on the design that God has. And this is, this is acknowledging that God has a design in music, that music works a certain way, that music stimulates the body in certain ways, and that as those who are seeking to compel a person unto the elements of the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, I am going to conform music to the things which are going to stir in them not an emotional impact, but stir in them a receptivity to the message of the, of, of the music itself. The, the words will not get lost underneath the, the emotions of the music. I'm not going to be caught up so, so much so in, in the music stirring me that you could just replace the words. How many, how many Christian songs, modern Christian songs, could you replace God with boyfriend, girlfriend, and it, it'd be just as valid? Uh, how many Christian songs can, can, can you uh, r- r- have either shallow or great words, but it's the music that's moving you? The idea that, that I'm contending is that, like with science, where men identified a design, and they're not going to go to the book and say, I, I can identify gravity from the book. I can, you know, but what they say is God created it. There is a design. I'm going to find it. I'm not here to make it. I'm here to identify it. They identify it and then they build on top of it. I'm saying music has that quality as well. That there is a design, that God intends a design, that it's our responsibility to identify that design, to identify how music in different ways impacts the, the, the person, and then to draw a line at the point where the music is actually stirring in me a carnal response, a fleshly response, to where the music is, is, is alluring in me a sensuality. In other words, as we talked about, no one is going to be sensually dancing to Beethoven. Even in that generation, there was different music for that. In the same way, if I go into a, a concert, Christian or, not, or otherwise, and there is the natural, the, the music itself would stimulate in these people a sensuality, a sensual res- bodily response. And, and not to say that they're going to you know, go out and, and, and uh, be sexually promiscuous or anything of the sort, but just a, if there's this sensual response to the music itself, then there's something about that music that is immoral. That, that, there is an, it, that, that there is a line where music itself can become immoral. And I'm not here to tell you where that line is. But I believe there's a very compelling case, especially as you understand that music is designed, that it is mathematical, and that it does affect us. That there is, there can be a line where music itself becomes immoral. And then, boy, one other thing with this. Um, we talk about kind of, if, if, you know, there, there's the, the great discussion about marijuana back in the 70s about it being a gateway drug, right? 
I haven't heard that discussion much in this newest marijuana debate, but that was the big thing in the 70s and 80s. It's, it's a gateway drug. Um, it is not uncommon, in my experience, among young Christians, for contemporary Christian music to be a, a, a gateway into secular music. You, lo you love the sound, you're getting the sound, and you get the, the same sound is found in secular music, and it rolls over to where there's, there's that, that idea of, okay, here I'm listening to this, and it's not that big of a jump now to listen to this. And the message is significantly different between those two songs. It's also, I believe, um, worth considering that there is something to be said for um, a distinction from the world to where something that may have been a bad testimony 15 years ago is no longer a bad testimony. To where 15 years ago I actually should not do something that 15 years later I can do. And remember we talked about liberty in Christ? Boy, I wish I could talk about the weaker brethren principle with you. It is possible that you and I could do the same thing and I could sin and you could not. Because we have liberty in Christ. It is not always about what we're doing. It's about maybe the people that, in other words, um, one of the things that, that Paul talks about is Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 14, the weaker brethren principle. And one of these things is eat, eating meat offered to idols. And Paul says that there's nothing wrong with eating meat that's offered to idols. The idea was that this meat would actually be placed, would be dedicated to an idol before it was served. Now, Paul says, if you are with somebody who is, who believes that eating meat offered to idols is wrong, then it would be wrong of you to encourage him, either through your testimony or, or actually encourage him to eat that meat because it would offend his conscience. And if he is doing it outside of faith, then by doing it, he is actually, even if, he's, even if it's not explicitly sin to eat meat offered to idols, if he thinks it's sin and he's doing it anyway and you're encouraging him to do it, what's in his heart? Rebellion. Rebellion is in his heart, right? If I think, if I think that, that um, writing in my Bible is a sin, which is silly, right? But if I think that writing in my Bible is a sin and I write in my Bible when it's not actually a sin, if I write my Bible thinking it's a sin, I have sinned. Because in my heart is rebellion against God. I am, whether or not it actually, God, whether or not God actually cares that I've written in my Bible, I am purposing to do something that I think God does not want me to do. My heart is rebellious. Which means that there is an association principle that says if, so, if, if, my, have, if my music which has godly lyrics, is associated... So let's take Lecrae, right? Let's take Lecrae. I am somewhat familiar... I don't even know if that's how you pronounce his name. I don't even know who this is. He's, he's a Christian rapper. He actually, hit, he actually hit the secular charts once, even. Let's take him. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah. Okay. Um, he, he's, a sec, he, he's a Christian rapper. Hip-hop, I suppose, is actually a genre, right? If you study the history of hip-hop... There's nothing in hip-hop that is anything but evil. So when, when Lecrae takes hip-hop and he, he repurposes it for a Christian message, Paul said in, in I believe it's 2 Corinthians, I would not have you be associated with devils. Can, can I serve God and the devil? And the idea is, if there is, I, I do not understand, 
how something as evil, and if you study the history of hip-hop, it came out of nothing but evil. I do not understand how I can take something with that history in this age where hip-hop is what it is and where it has the reputation it has and use it for God's glory and say that the associations don't matter. I just don't understand that. I, I don't understand how I can take something that is so closely associated with the devil and say, I'm going to take this thing that's so closely associated to the devil and I am going to put God's words in this thing and I'm going to try to use it for the glory of God. I believe that there's a doctrinal inconsistency there when we are attempting to do that. I think that there's a line that's crossed. You mentioned the gateway drug and I think uh, coming from a, a, a church that uses lots of gateway music. Yep. What I'll tell you is that there's a lot of people out there that need to be, they need to find their faith. You're right. And so the gateway drug goes two ways, I guess you could say. Yep. And so yes, sure, it can make it easier for somebody in the church to listen, but hopefully we're being fed enough to know the difference. Right. Okay. Right. But number two, it, it's used as a tool to bring people the other direction. Right. I've never heard of anybody smoking crack and then getting off of it by a pot. <laughs> and so I don't know if I buy the two way argument. Well, well but, but you can't but, but you can't call that music pot. Because it's not I mean it's not. It's not pot. Not the pot. argument that he just made, he would say that it was pot. It it was it, it Yes. Only if it's rap. All, <laughs> only if it's hip hop, right? <laughs> but um. Hey, hey, the guy that wears the pink shirt—you never know what they might be. That's right. <laughs> but where does country music fit into So, so. It's a good guy. Uh, uh, I now know I can't listen in front of Jamin, but when I'm on my way home. So, so this is why I said Greg and I have not had this full discussion, right? I'm sorry. What's that? Just listen to hymns in the boat, Jamin. Before you were talking. Yes. You mentioned a Bible verse. What, what Bible verse? Did for the for the devil and yeah. let, let let me go ahead and find it here. Um, and this this is actually the same argument. Uh, and remember, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. Um, the the day the, I'm not arguing from this that well. Maybe I'll, I'll just leave that alone for the moment. Let me see. Um. Can I read? Yes, I will. I will. Um, so now we're gonna get to week five. <laughs> we're 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 in trouble, folks. We're, we are in trouble here. Um, Sorry, guys. Boy, that hour flew by. Two hours. Conversation makes this thing go fast. And I wasn't I wasn't even rapping, and it went by, right? I wasn't even rapping. Um, six. I do whatever I can to just promote Christianity. Yes. Well, and, and this is the thing, is at the end of the day, um, that there, there are major disagreements between Protestantism and Catholicism. And a lot of them... Right. Right. And, and, and 
the, the problem in the church today, th there is a unity problem. And that unity, and one of the reasons why the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church is because they see, rightfully so, that Protestantism is broken in that it is divided. So Greg and I kind of have this conversation because you have, uh, you know, you have the, the you, you have, say, the, the, the charismatic wing of the church, and then you have the non-charismatic wing of the church. The charismatic wing have grabbed a hold of something as it pertains to the Holy Ghost that is, that is true, his power. But they have done so at the expense of, of doctrinal truth. Then in response to that, because humans are pendulum swingers, so if the charismatics are over here and they have, done, they have got a hold of, of the Holy Spirit's power and understood a, an element of it, but at the expense of, of, of truth, then we say that's wrong. So we go, boom, over to here. And, and then there's a whole other wing of the church that almost denies the Holy Spirit's existence, at least practically, if not in word, in function. And what have they done? Well, they've swung to the other end, but they are oftentimes very doctrinally solid. But they deny the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we are always trying to do is find this, this middle ground here. I'm, well, all of these arguments that I'm giving you, especially as we've related to music here or as we've related to different denominations, and, and, and there would be major disagreements. There are major things that, that I believe are wrong with, with the Catholic Church. If, if, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be, I'd be a Catholic, right? Um, I, w I wouldn't be outside of them. But, um, but the fact is, even as I say all this stuff about music, I'm not trying to tell you right or wrong, black or white, explicitly. Uh, I have arguments, and I believe those arguments are sound, and I believe that, it, it, that if you consider them prayerfully, there's validity to them. But um, this is not... If we all follow Christ, and we are all desiring what Christ wants, then as this information comes about, if our hearts are, are eager and desiring to serve the Lord... There's going to be a natural alignment. That doesn't mean we're all going to become clones. But it will mean that we all are pursuing the same ideals. And then we are ready if our understanding of those ideals, or not ideals, but if our understanding of what we are living out changes in relation to, to doctrine and truth, we're ready to change as well. So that if, if as you say, there, there is this idea of you're bringing in people, right? So Billy Graham did this. Billy Graham used a lot of different methods to get people in, and then he preached the gospel to them, and he preached a hard, clear gospel. And, and uh, I, I have some problems with some of his other elements of his method, but the idea being, do I need to appeal to culture to get people in those doors, or can I find a method that does not flirt those boundaries? And is the danger that comes from... from if I can use the word, compromising these elements of distinction, does that danger of what it might do to the church outweigh the benefits? But so, there's some idea of being countercultural to you guys, right? Because you guys are like, all right, well, the music we play is not the same as our culture, right? It's countercultural, but... Not, not explicitly, no. no. Correct. I mean, some church, many churches, yes. Uh, uh, for, for our okay, church, no. Okay. But, okay, so let's there is there is it's a, a wing. It's like you're not going to hear it on KTIS, right? It's 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 counterculture. No, no, no. What I would say is that the book informs how things are to function. We try to conform to the book, okay, and that leads us to a place where culture used to be. Right. Culture then changed and left where we were, and we have not changed. That's fair. 
So it's the culture that's countercultural to us because we were there first. And if the culture were to realign with biblical principles, they would be where we are. then we'd be with culture. And that would not necessarily mean that everyone's listening to Amazing Grace. It would mean that the people that are writing music would be writing music that conforms... As, as rich. As rich. And by the way, the stuff that, if I bring it, I'm going to give you is modern stuff. It is not stuff that was written 100 years ago. It was stuff that was written two years ago, three years ago. But it's just, I mean, it is rich and it is good and it is what I would say is musically balanced and all so of those things. Because it uses certain instruments and not other instruments. No, not necessarily. It's, it's and, and again, you know. We don't necessarily agree on this right. little piece. Right, but but it's not necessarily. And, and and again, there is there is a contingency. So I had a guy in my my church. Uh, he's he's been gone for many years now. But if he saw a, a guitar on stage, he would literally like recoil, because he had a problem with the instrument itself. That's that is out of balance. Yes, but the idea that I am going to uh, the, the so do laptops and turntables do that to you guys? I I have a laptop. Right next to me every week. You mean just as far as like synthetic music type thing? Yeah. Not necessarily, except that. Uh, is, except here, here's the thing with that. So we we've got I've got a guy um, that's connected to the church in, in a minor way, who every time he comes, our piano is old and kind of out of tune, and and he says, "You just got to get a keyboard. You got to get a keyboard," and. Um, that's fine. It's a gateway drug. No, it's not. It's not. But I can say this, that one of the, one of the unfortunate side effects of being careful about culture is that it does make you chafe a little bit at change um, to where it's uncomfortable. So one of the things that I chafe with, um, clapping has become the new way to praise the Lord after a something you know, a, a special in the Not church, right? During music, we're just clapping. Like after, no, after applause, after applause. music, after music, yeah. right? Applause. Yeah. Um, that's something that characteristically in our tradition we don't do, and the reason why is because applause has characteristically been a sign that you are giving credit to the person who did the work rather than rather than to God, right? However, that mindset is shifting in the church to where applause is. I'm clapping for the Lord type idea. And that's something where every time there's clapping in, in my congregation, and it happens, uh, especially when little kids do specials, uh, there's a part of me that chafes a little bit. I'm not comfortable with that. But it's not. But I, I have to acknowledge that I know the purpose. The purpose. And, and, and yet, is it okay for me to get up and say, hey, I understand your purpose here, but we don't clap. We say amen or whatever instead. And is it okay to maintain that? It is. Is it wrong to not maintain it? It's not. And this is where the... Here's the thing. The, the Christian life is not rules. The Christian life is not rules. The Christian life is a relationship with God. And what we are doing is we are seeking to form a vibrant relationship with the Lord where every day I say, is this actually pleasing God or is this actually some compromise? If I can step into a setting and I can say, you know what? A year ago, I thought that this was okay, but maybe the setting I'm in now or the people I'm around, this association is no longer comfortable. This is actually putting me in a place where I am associating with something that they don't want. Tattoos, right? Tattoos have become a big thing in Christianity today. But tattoos are still in our culture associated, characteristically speaking, with rebellion. And, and so is it, 
it, it is not, so, so is, is it wrong to get a tattoo as a Christian? It's not explicitly wrong. You know, some people will go to Leviticus and talk about the, the, the marking up of your skin and stuff. And the reason why, why did God tell Israel not to have marks on their skin? Because that is what pagans did to worship their gods. Why were, were the, the Israelites not allowed to shave their heads? Because that is what, the priests were not allowed to shave their heads because that is what pagan priests did in the worship to their gods. God said, don't be associated with them. Come out from among them and be separate. And in doing so, don't get marks on your skin. Don't shave your head. And so the debate becomes, as a Christian, now is it explicitly sinful for me to get a tattoo? No, all things are lawful. I've been called unto liberty. But is there something about getting a tattoo that might actually cause me to associate with rebellion, which I know God hates? Quite possibly. So then I should be extremely, I should be careful. And what, what I've found is that as I grow in my love for the Lord, I'm somehow getting more conservative. I'm, I'm looking at the movies I watch and I say, you know what, I really shouldn't be watching that and that's not really all that good. And, 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 and the movie selection, it's not because I'm, I'm going down a checklist and saying, oh, it's rated PG-13, I can't watch that, or it's rated R, I can't watch that. No. But it is that as you grow closer to the Lord, you love what He loves, you hate what He hates, all of a sudden you start to see some things that you might actually, a year ago, you were fine and you could do it before the Lord, but now, you know what, I just don't know if that's right. Or, or your perspective has changed. And allow yourself to go down those paths. Don't go nuts. But allow yourself to go where God leads. And if He's convicting you, be, be, be conscious of that. Be, be, be um, sensitive to that. Go where God wants you to go because that's what He wants of us. And, and, and it goes the other way as well. You know, at some point, if, our, if, if associations change or if, or, or if whatever it is changes, our, our church might change some things. I do acknowledge that, um, that some of the music, the, the, the hymns used to be put to old bar, bar tunes because those were the tunes that people knew. So in order to cause the music to, to, uh, to be understood among the people, they would put them to bar, bar tunes. In that particular age, there was a contingency of the church that said, these tunes are coming out of bar rooms. We don't want them in our churches. And now they're some of our beloved favorites. But the context has changed. And can we say it was, not, it was sin then or it was wrong then, but it's not wrong now? Is that valid? It can be. That something that is wrong in one age doesn't necessarily have to be wrong in another. Something that is right in one age, uh, um, uh, right in one age can actually become wrong. Uh, there were some big debates in the 60s and 70s over certain elements in Christianity. One of them was going to movie theaters. And the reason was because there was, at one time, culturally, a very negative association between people and movie theaters. So could you have a, a righteous testimony at a movie theater? Well, that, that's gone, right? However, in many of the churches in my circle... If you're a deacon, you still have to sign something saying, I will not go to a movie theater. They are still fighting a battle that's long past. They're fighting a battle that has died out. Nobody is going to see you go to a movie theater anymore unless they're in this circle and they're, you know, believe. No one's going to see you go to a movie theater anymore and assume that, that you are, that, that, that there is something evil happening there. Because the association of movie theaters in our culture has changed. Whereas before, oftentimes, it was a place to go to get something that was indecent or indiscreet. 
Now it's a, a, an entirely different part of our culture. It's an entirely different element of our culture. So this is, if you've heard things tonight and you felt challenged, I, that's good. But if you feel as though I'm, I'm challenging you on the lines of right and wrong, white and black, uh, like I'm telling you that you're evil for what you're doing, you're missing the mark. Because the idea here is that we have liberty in Christ, but why I stand where I stand and why I make the arguments I make is because there are things that I have thought through and things that people before me have thought through and have taught me that I see as valid, that I see value in, that I think that if the line is here, uh, this is an analogy I give, if sin is the cliff, so we've got this cliff, and here's, here's the, let, let me draw it, since we've got it. So we've got this field, and then we have cliff. And the cliff is sin, right? If I go over this cliff, I have gone into sin. So now, how do I keep, if, 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 my chi- if I don't want my child to fall over the cliff, what do I do? Well, that's one thing I could do. What else could I do? I could put up a fence, right? So, and so I put up a fence. But if I put that fence right there, and I tell my child, don't climb the fence, is my child going to climb the fence? Of course. My child is going to climb the fence. So if I put the fence right here, when the child climbs the fence, what's going to happen to him? He's going he's to die. He's going to fall into sin. What if I put the fence right here? If I put the fence right there, then when my child climbs the fence, he's not in sin yet. If I put the fence back here, now here's the thing. If I have a child that's well-behaved, I can put the fence there. If I have a child that's not as well-behaved, I have to put the fence here. If I have a child that's really rebellious, I'm going to put the fence back here. I do too. So here's the thing. When my fence is back here, I lose out on a whole area that I can play in. Right? But I do so for the sake of protection. We are all different people. Maybe you, in a certain area of your life, you need a fence right here because you just can't handle it. And you know you're going to cross that fence. So you set a standard. So television, right? I don't drink. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah maybe I'm not going to drink. Drinking is not explicitly sinful in the Bible, right? I'm not going to drink because I don't want... Maybe I'm here. Yeah, a great example, I mean, some of you guys I go to dinner with or a game and you guys have a beer or wine or whatever and you don't go over that fence. Right. But I, you know me, I don't do anything halfway, right? <laughs> so, I mean, if I had one, it's probably 10, and I'm over the fence, out on the court. Right. You know? and, and the Life next, right, exactly. So, so Greg puts his fence back here to protect himself. He's not telling you that if your fence is here, you're sinning. No. But if you are here, which is be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, in other words, but be filled with the Spirit. The, the, the contrast there is if there's something in you, and it's not just alcohol, if, there is a, if there's something in you, a substance in you that is, that is challenging the capacity of the Holy Spirit to guide you, that is challenging the ability, so whether this is an opioid, whether this is, um, whether this is alcohol, whether this is, um, um, well, you know, ca- caffeine doesn't necessarily do that to, to people, but regardless of what it is, if there is something that I am allowing to, to influence me to where the, sp- the Spirit of God, who is the one that I'm supposed to be led by, is incapable of leading me because there is something influencing my thoughts or my actions in a negative way, then I am sinning. So I need to put the fence at the place in my life where I won't go over the edge if I break the fence. And if my fence is right on the edge, then I am flirting with sin, right? 
if I put my fence here. And you know what? Maybe my fence starts here. And this is how it works with children, right? You start here. And then when the children shows himself responsible, you move the fence. You give them privileges. And then if they show them, and with the, th this whole area now is free to them. They are, they, they are free to operate within those boundaries. But don't go over the fence. And then maybe that one opens up in time as they show themselves responsible. And then if they fail, then I back up the fence. Standards in our lives are fences. Now, where does it become a problem? In my circles, this is what happens. Our church sets a fence. No contemporary Christian music. Uh, we will not bring drum. We don't use drums in our assembly. Uh, these sorts of things. These are our fences. And then because these are our fences, the next generation grows up thinking that this is doctrine, that this is Bible, that if they step over the fence, they have sinned. And, and their parents have taught them that, or their pastors have taught them that, because their pastors don't trust the Holy Spirit enough in them to, to say, this is a standard, but it's not law. So many pastors in my circles will rail against alcoholism, and, and, and rightfully so, but they'll rail then against alcohol itself. And rightfully, I, I don't know of too many positive benefits to alcohol. You put the fence back there, it's a good thing. You know, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Everything that the Bible says about alcohol, with the exception of Timothy for his stomach, a little bit of wine, and, and, and you know, Jesus did turn the water into wine and those sorts of things. But everything that the Bible says about alcohol is, is pretty negative, especially in the Proverbs, right? So the idea that I put my fence back here is not unfounded scripturally. But then what, what people have said is, okay, so if they step over the fence into alcohol, that is sin. Well, right, anything done to excess, any, any virtue can become a vice. Anything done outside of temperance is not of the spirit because one of the fruits of the spirit is temperance, right? So anything, and that, that includes gluttony. That includes binge watching. You know, if, if, I, am, if, I, am if I am losing out on, res yielding responsibilities for the sake of entertainment, that's intemperance. That's of the flesh, not of the spirit. So anyway, fences. We set up fences. And yes, I acknowledge that when I set up a fence back here, I am losing something that is rightfully mine. I am, I am yielding a freedom that I have, but I'm doing so for the greater safety, for the greater good. We all have to put up fences in our lives. And as we've talked about some of these arguments, the question, of course, is where is that line of sin? And with music, there's not, there's not a consensus. With um, many of these elements of the church, there's not a consensus. Some say, no, this is sin. Others say, no, this is offense. And then some say, our fence is sin, right? And this is why we're divided today. But if we can get back to the mindset that says, we are going to trust the Spirit of God, we are going to pray and walk in the Spirit of God, every day is going to be a prayerful, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I'm aligning myself with you, you what do you want of me today? And I set myself on the side, so if God says, hey, you know what, you've been watching that movie for years and it's your favorite movie, I want it. Uh, God, no, <laughs> no, I want it. Never watch it again. Okay, I'm ready. I'll do it. I'll do it. Not because it's sin for anyone else, but because it's what you want of me. It's what you want of me. If you see something in the Word of God and God says, this is, this is what that means for you, are you willing to yield it? That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's what it means to be on the altar. That's what it means to be walking in the Spirit. Is that if God wants it, you give it. And if, if, God, if, if God doesn't want it, then you allow yourself to operate within the freedom that he's given.
And this is, this is where joy is. This is where peace is. This is where, this is where that delight is. Because then I'm not like some religions or some faith systems. I'm not, life is no fun. Everything that's fun in life, I can't do, right? That, that's oftentimes the mindset. Well, no, it's not that way. If I am not doing something, if my fence is here and my children know why the fence is there or I know why the fence is there, then this stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm yielding, it doesn't become a hardship anymore. It becomes, I've, I, I've just chosen a different way. I've chosen, in my opinion, a better way. I've chosen a higher road. And, and then certainly, you look over the cliff of sin and you look at the stuff there that the world does and, and, and you say, God hates that, so I, I don't want it. Because this is where my freedom lies and this is where joy and protection are. And when I step outside of this fence, I'm outside of God's protection and I'm outside of God's blessing. And I just don't want... There's nothing down there that's worth that. There's nothing down there that is worth being outside of the joy, the protection, and the blessing of God. Nothing. And this is a lot of what Ecclesiastes teaches. Um, where Solomon goes into sin and every and any sin... And he acknowledges life is meant to be loved and enjoyed, but only within the context of God's will for you. So this is why it's so important to walk in the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to, to, to have a thriving relationship with God so that when these things come up, and I, I hope that at least I challenged your thinking a little bit as it pertains to music. Think about it at least. Pray about it. Do a little extra research on it. See if... See if, if, if Maybe, just maybe, there might be a little piece of you that says, you know what, I, 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 this is what the Spirit wants of me. And if He doesn't, then don't, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty about it if He doesn't. If the Spirit does not lead you down, may, maybe it's because you're not ready. Maybe it's because it's not what the Spirit wants of you. That's fine. I can acknowledge that. And you can acknowledge that as well. I'm not here to tell you do and don't do except for the things that thus saith the Lord. If we're loyal to the book and we're loyal to God and we're loyal to his way and to his spirit, this is, this is what God wants. Let me give you those verses you asked for. It's 2 Corinthians 6. Um, Paul says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what, hath commun- what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial, which is the devil? Or what part hath the belie- that, uh, he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Associations with the world are a dangerous thing. And I'm not saying that any time that we associate, it's wrong, but here's the thing with it. If I, if I can clearly, and, and everyone around me can clearly see that something is deeply associated with, with a culture that is, that is evil, and it came out of an evil culture, if something comes out of an evil culture, if a philosophy comes out of an evil culture, if a method comes out of an evil culture, then I need to be careful to the degree that I associate the things of Christ with that. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying explicit yes, no on this. But what I'm saying is, the closer you get to evil culture. Now, again, when culture is right, 
then, and this is, this is the problem in the United States. For years, culture was right, generally speaking. I mean, there was still always an underlying evil, but for years, culture had a, a, a friendliness towards biblical principle. That changed with the cultural sexual revolution of the 60s. All of a sudden, culture and the church are diametrically opposed. And so as we see this diametric opposition, the question becomes, now the things that are coming up in culture, the things that are defining our culture, is it still okay for those things to also define the church? And there's a, I believe there's a very valid debate to say that in doing so, what we are doing is we are lessening the distinction and thus the power and the testimony of the church at large. Those people that are influenced by that, are they attending church? Influenced, I'm sorry. By the change in the 60s, 50s. Um, the, or they leave, leave Christianity. Well, uh, th- that generation, the youth left in droves, right? And that's where youth group came from. Youth group was actually an outworking of the idea that if our children will not go with their parents to their parents' churches because they've rejected everything that their parents, you know, it was, it was a rebellious time, then we're going to have a, a, an area for them where they can go to church without their parents. The problem there is that what, what just happened, and this is our church is a non-age segregated church for this reason. Again, I'm not saying youth group is evil. But what I'm saying is the, the motivation for youth group was instead of encouraging the children to repent and to stop their rebellion against their parents, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, honor thy father and mother, right? Instead of actually encouraging this rebellion to cease, we are instead going to make a way for the church to accommodate these rebellious children. And that is the church compromise there. And now youth culture has created an entirely different culture in the church, and we're seeing three quarters of all Young people leave the church today. Three, a full three quarters, three out of every four, by some statistics, young people are leaving the church today as, the, as many things. Number one, our children, I believe, well, there's lots of reasons. The highest statistic was that Sunday school, the children that went to Sunday school had the biggest problem, were more likely to leave, because Sunday school actually, you know, flannel graphs and stories and such Sunday school actually created a, this division in their minds where they go to school during the week to learn what's true and they go, to, they, go, they go to Sunday school on Sundays to learn stories. And so the Bible became not true and school became true. And so when they hit college, typically, or as a matter of fact, statistically, it's by the, end of high, uh, by, by the beginning of high school, uh, they have already decided that, that real knowledge and the Bible are in conflict. Science and the Bible are in conflict. Philosophy and the Bible are in conflict, and they've already placed their, their standard on, on the world rather than the church. Um, w- would I argue that this compromise has, has caused the church to be where it is, especially with people leaving? I would, but um, not everyone would. Uh, would I argue that, that, that partic- the, the generation that grew up and were redeemed, as it were, by youth group and were brought back in by youth organizations, would I argue that that was a a band-aid to a much bigger problem that was actually never solved in the church, that actually led to the segregating of children from their parents, uh, to where now parents parents feel as though just as they can send their children to 
to school and have them come back educated. Now I can send my children to church and have them come back godly. And so the parents don't work in the week. They don't worry about hypocrisy in the week. They live one way and they, they preach another and children see hypocrisy and they say, why do I want any of this? You, my, my parents bring me to church and I hear this stuff at church and, and, and my parents say this is what I should believe. And then I go home and I know how my parents live and I know what they think and I know what they watch and I know what they do and I know how they talk and I know that they sit there and they nod their head as the pastor says, husbands love your wives and wives submit. And then they go home and they bicker and they argue and they do all of this all day, every day. And there's no submission and there's no love. I know this. And they see hypocrisy and they say, if that's what the church is, then I don't want it. I don't want to live a lie. I might as well just, just throw it all out. I thought there was a real strong com- coming back of the uh, youth to Christianity. Um, to Christianity, to spirituality. The majority of the young people today, the millennial generation, they're spiritual but not religious. There was a rejection through modernism, humanism and modernism, of, of biblical truth for a time. But modernism has given way to postmodernism, right? So just the media putting a twist on things? Well, no. Well, well, yes, in that spirituality is not Christianity. Um, this is the idea that, that they are willing to, they're dabbling in the spiritual, but the Jesus that they serve, this uh, Oprah, you know, Oprah, she's, she's a... She's a prophetess of Satan. She has this spirituality about her, and it's this humanistic, uh, it, it's this idea of, of self-actualization, self-realization. Um, this is the doctrine of devils that we can see all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New. But it's spiritual, and they use the name of Jesus all the time, and they do these things in the name of Jesus, and it's all in the name of Jesus, but it's not genuine. It is not the genuine article. And this is, this is that danger. This is, this is that, and, and the Bible warns us that as we get closer, there's going to be a lot more of this deception going on. Um, so they are coming back to the church, but a lot of it's coming back to um, the church that is merging hu- uh, um, uh, philosophies, New Age thought, humanism, with Christian ideas into this amalgamation of philosophical mumbo-jumbo that looks like the church but isn't the church. And that's what a lot of, of people are coming back to. It's not actually to the truths of Christ. Have you seen this guy? He's all over YouTube now. He's like this mid-50s guy and all he does is go out on stage and stare at the audience. People pay thousands of dollars for him to stand there and stare at them. It's the weirdest thing in the world. People start crying mm. They're like, this man, he doesn't speak, but he speaks through. It's, right. it's like you watch it, and it's like, what are these, what's going on with these people? People are aching. See, here's the thing. They, there was the, the, in the modernistic generation attempted to completely reject God, and it left a void that just had to be filled. And they're aching for it. Why, you know, when, when, we, when we think about what, what um, the media became with the zombie thing and the vampire thing and this, all the supernatural that like flooded us all at once, in, in culture. What happened there? There was a generation that had been completely removed from God that was seeking the supernatural and flocked to that stuff because it filled that void. Um, it's the same thing with church. You know, churches are dying. People are, are, are losing community because they don't have churches anymore. That's one of the reasons why PTSD is on the rise because it used to be soldiers would come back to a community and a family and a church and they could cope. Now they come back to Facebook and Twitter 
And that just makes it worse, right? It just turns them internalized. It, it, it gets them, it just it, it screws everything up. And so they're actually creating atheist churches, right? Places where atheists come and they have talks about how there's no meaning to life. And uh, it's, it's because there's a void. It's in man. And that's what we started with in Romans 1. There is a void. There is a need for God that must be satisfied in some way. And they're going to they're gonna satisfy it. But the thing is, is there's a lot of false things that can fill that spot that are not Christ. And it's not going to bring the satisfaction. But what it will bring is a, a band-aid. And it, it will give them a little bit of what they're seeking. And the supernatural is, is what the millennials are craving for. But they're not finding it as, as heavily as the media would say in Christ. They're finding it in false Christs. They're finding it in things that look like Christ but are not Christ. They're finding it in things that are outside of truth. So I think to bring it kind of full circle. Yes. We're sorry for your, time. sorry for not sorry, respecting your time. I think the key thing to me is if we look at all these different um, denominations of Christianity or different perspectives on some things like music or whatever, like Jamie and I don't necessarily agree. The majority of Christianity we would agree on and it's what's in the book. The foundations of, of the faith. And that's where to me, um, in having discussions with everybody I invite to this, the meat of the issue sometimes isn't as well understood as perhaps we would all like it to be. So the, the purpose of this time is to learn what's in the book so we know why a position is is considered orthodox or not orthodox, right? And then when we're really rich in what's in the in here, then these debates become interesting and somewhat academic because um, the positions aren't um, as doctrinally rich. Is that fair, Jamin? Mm-hmm. As or, or, or as clear? Th- yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is you, we, we we take a, a verse or two verses as opposed to a concept that's written about extensively throughout many of the books. Does that make sense? So I think the focus for now is more on the core. Right. And once that's solid, then we can get into some of the flavors. And, and you know, those debates may never fully be solved, but if we were all walking in the spirit and heading in the same direction and not allowing the flesh to, to get in there and the devil to get in there, we wouldn't need denominations for these disagreements. Uh, there would be a church and these disagreements would be yes he is this and he is that and they're they're a little bit different but we wouldn't need to separate churches for it because we'd all be led by the spirit and there is only one god and there is one spirit and there is one church right thank you for your time sorry i went went over